Hello, and welcome back to the Braxton Ranch Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Gidding. Last week on Campfire Stories was Chapter 2, Laid to Rest. This week, Chapter 3, Trouble. So let's go get that campfire started, and we'll nestle in for a good story. The Kings of Braxton, Born Unto Trouble. Chapter 3 Trouble. 1. The town of Braxton sat on the northern bank of the Ohio River, at the border of Ohio and West Virginia, and Highway 60 cut through the center of town. This was the main highway that connected larger cities in the north, like Pittsburgh and Cleveland, to the cities in the south, like Charleston and beyond. Wheat and cornfields circled the town for miles, and a large portion of those fields were owned by King Farms. In the years since the Great War, Braxton had changed dramatically. The widow who bought the general store after Jackson Hartford was elected mayor, Alyssa Crosby, had also bought out the adjoining barber shop just so she could expand and cover her growing clientele as the town grew. Being a major connection point on the 60, was changing and growing to accommodate the heavier traffic. Cars now traveled where horses and wagons once dominated, and with the passing of Prohibition the previous year, the smaller saloons were forced to shut their doors. A brand new courthouse had been built a block over for easier access for the townspeople. It was larger and made of stone. The old wooden courthouse was converted into the new barber shop and post office, where the local politicians would gather and talk about the latest political news while getting a fresh shave from Milton Horace, the barber. Milton Hartford went there every morning for a hot shave and warm coffee. He would meet his aide, Steve, and the two would discuss the day's events. Jake Burns, who recently returned from Washington, where he had served as a congressman for a number of years, would meet the two men there almost every day as well. He liked to stay close to the political crowd. Mayor Hartford had a large house built not far from the courthouse, in an empty lot near the river. A new restaurant, Lefty's, was built at the edge of town. It was one of the few places around where a person could relax and drink all the alcohol he or she wanted. Lefty was a loud man from the hills of Kentucky and believed that it was a man's right to get liquored up anytime he wanted to. Everyone for miles around knew that the liquor still flowed freely there and the place packed in the crowds because of it. The food wasn't that great, but the live band and constant flow of flappers made it worth the visit. Lefty worked the floor every night and was quite possibly the most popular man in the county, if not the state. The kings kept the peace in town for many years, but after they were ostracized, the town was no longer watched over and it slowly began to fall into the wrong hands. The brothers enlisted to fight over in France in 1914 even before the country joined the effort. They felt their skills would be of more use over there fighting the Germans than hanging around the farm. 
Once back from the war in late 1918, the Kings returned to a simple farming lifestyle, thinking their fighting days were behind them. Neil married his longtime girlfriend Carol, and she moved into the farmhouse with the rest of the family. Sam built a small house near Kings Creek, but stayed in the farmhouse with the rest of the family most nights. He spent a lot of time keeping in shape and maintaining his fighting and shooting skills, just in case. Sam enjoyed his peaceful existence, but knew it wouldn't last forever. He was always ready and expected to one day be needed again. Neil, however, longed for the glory days and sometimes seemed to get a bit restless. He would occasionally hunt down a criminal in some neighboring town just for fun. He loved the adoration and the attention. Even as farmers, Neil and Sam were never without their matching revolvers resting in their worn leather gun belts. Their father had been caught off guard without his belt, and they weren't going to make the same mistake. Junior Hartford had become sheriff shortly after his 20th birthday. He had grown to be a tall, meaty man with short brown hair and a sharp nose. It was no real surprise when he got the nomination. He had worked with the Kings in the past, which gave him more experience than anyone else in town, and he used that to his advantage during his campaign. His father, being the mayor, didn't hurt either. Junior stayed put when the country went to war, feeling his place was at home. During the war, things began to go south in Braxton, so Junior was glad to step in and start cleaning up the streets. Most of the smart criminals would stop at the edge of town in a small hotel called the Borough Inn before continuing on to their destination. They were the ones who knew about Braxton's protectors, the Kings. Most people knew it was only a matter of time before they came back, and after the inn shut down, the smarter criminals just drove on by Braxton. Once Junior became sheriff, he brought some friends in as deputies, people he trusted to have his back in every situation. John Gale was one such friend, who had been raised just outside of town in a thick wooded area. Growing up, he only went into town when his father ran out of tobacco, or his mother wanted to get a supply of scented soap. John had long stringy hair that was much darker than his neatly trimmed beard. He always seemed to wear the same dirty clothes, but made sure to polish his badge. Marcus was another one of Junior's close and trusted deputies. Nobody knew his last name or where he came from, including him. He was orphaned at a young age, and because he was of mixed race, part black and part Indian, he was a target growing up in the orphanage and at school when he went. Junior and Marcus became close at a young age, and Junior knew that he would be a great asset to the streets. Junior also had a handful of officers who patrolled the town and took care of the everyday police work. 2. It was a cool Friday night in late April 1921, and the town folk were ready for an evening of cutting loose and letting off some steam. Lefties was packed, like most Friday nights. The bar, which was just inside the door, ran the length of the room. A swinging door at the end of the bar led to the kitchen. 
The live band at the back of the room was really jumping. A young man dressed in a fancy suit played a shiny trumpet. A young black man on the drums bounced as he kept the fast tempo, and a young woman danced about in her seat as she played the piano. The cello and bass players played along, laughing and tapping their feet. The dance floor was full of young flappers, driving all the young men crazy with their new and outrageous dance moves. The joint was alive, and the feeling in the air was one of joy. It was early in the new era where women let loose and were more independent than ever before. They were smoking now and drinking, and most young women cut their hair short and wore their skirts even shorter. Lefty leaned against the bar, flirting with a young cigarette girl as she filled her tray with single cigarettes and matchboxes. Lefty was a short hillbilly, notorious for wearing short pants year-round, and for his gruff hillbilly talk. Elizabeth, the daughter of Spencer and Nina Douglas, waited tables and fought off advances from drunk men who were unable to control themselves. Elizabeth, short and thin, was nineteen and had jet black bobbed hair and the prettiest crooked smile. She was quite strong, having grown up on her family's farm, doing all the normal chores that kept the farm going, and she was able to fend off any advances that were a bit too rowdy. Elizabeth had been living on her own since her parents had been killed during a massive blizzard two years ago. She lost the farm shortly afterward and began to rent a small house from Jake Burns. Lefty gave her a job without question, mostly because he knew her good looks would help bring in men. Junior, John, and Marcus had the night off. They usually did on Fridays. They went to Lefty's for some relaxing and letting off steam of their own. John brought along his longtime girlfriend, Sally Fortsmith. This was a normal Friday night activity for the group. They made their way to the booth reserved for the group every Friday night at the far side of the room. Junior made sure to face the entrance, as he did every time he went into a restaurant. It was an instinct he picked up over the years. He always wanted to see who was coming and going. Elizabeth walked over to Junior's group holding an empty tray and a pad and pen. Hey, why don't you join us tonight, Liz? Junior asked with a chuckle. Liz laughed at Junior's comment. I got plenty of office tonight, Junior, she said with a thick drawl. What do you got they don't? Liz was shy and sweet most of the time, but her response was snappy and full of attitude, and it threw off Junior. I'm me, Liz. What else do you need? Oh, honey, you couldn't handle a girl like me. You're breaking my heart, Liz. She's just waiting for Sam, Junior, John chimed in. Junior laughed, but was hurt by the comment. Is that right? Are you still holding out hope for a lost cause? Junior asked, masking his true feelings. Sam had saved Liz from a group of outsiders many years ago. When she was only 13, she was kidnapped and taken deep into the woods, where she was held captive in a cabin, chained to a bed. The kidnappers were hoping for a ransom, but her family didn't have that kind of money and were unable to pay. So, they called on Sam and Neil for help. They were only teenagers at the time, but everyone knew they were the ones to call in times of need. 
Spencer Douglas showed up at the King's farmhouse on a gloomy day with his wife. Your father helped us out many years ago, Spencer began. Now we come to you, begging for your help. Find our daughter, please. Without question, the brothers snapped into action. This was the kind of work they loved, helping people. Fighting criminals and keeping the streets of Braxton clean were important too, but helping people in trouble held more satisfaction, and Neil loved the fame that came with it. Once the brothers found the hideout cabin, which was in the middle of the forest about four miles outside of town, Sam busted in the door with guns at the ready, and the moment Liz saw him, she fell in love. Neil took care of the kidnappers while Sam freed Liz from her chains. It was shortly after that that the Kings were ostracized and had to leave town. She hadn't seen Sam in years, but her feelings for her rescuer never faded. What can I get you tonight? The usual? Liz desperately wanted to change the subject. Please, Sally responded for the group. Four coffees, too? Liz inquired. Yes, please. Sally replied. Coffee was slang for whiskey. Liz jotted down the order and walked away. Junior was interested in Liz and had been for years, but his advances were never returned. He turned his attention to the young flappers on the dance floor. He loved to watch them bounce and shake around in their simple skirts that were fancied up with beads. Marcus watched the young cigarette girl as she walked around the room selling single cigarettes to the patrons. Lefty came over to the group and leaned down on the table. How yous doing? He asked as he brushed crumbs out of his bushy beard. Doing fine, thanks, John replied. Oh yeah. Living the dream, Big John. It was at this point that Lefty noticed Junior watching the flappers. Oh yeah. Get you some, J.R., Lefty said, hitting Junior in the shoulder. Junior shot Lefty a disapproving look before he returned his attention to the dance floor. Ha! Well, y'all get liquored up on me tonight, Lefty said as he adjusted himself. Thanks, Sally replied. Lefty walked away and the group relaxed a bit. He made them feel uncomfortable, but he was always giving them free food and drinks so the group just put up with him. And he was a nice guy for the most part. He was just loud, and his behavior was often inappropriate in public. A cute young flapper noticed Junior's gaze and made her way over to him. Hey, Junior. You want to come join me? She asked flirtatiously. Junior looked at his watch. I'd love to, but not just right now. Maybe later, he said. The young flapper shrugged her shoulders and returned to the dance floor defeated, but with the hopes of the promised future dance. Marcus saw Junior's reaction and was stunned. You really gonna let a cute thing like that get away? Marcus asked, wanting to go on the dance floor after her. No, I just wanted to wait, that's all, Junior replied with a smirk. Liz returned to the table with four mugs on a tray and distributed them to the group. Your food will be out. Interrupted by the sound of gunfire, she dropped to the floor in fear, wielding her tray like a shield. The young piano player was shot in the back, 
She fell limp over the piano just as a trumpet player was hit in the chest by a loud shotgun blast. Junior and his deputies reached for their guns. Not so fast, coppers, yelled a masked man as he ran toward the table, pointing a large shotgun at the group. The man and his four partners wore burlap sacks over their heads with holes cut out to sea. They were brandishing shotguns and repeating rifles. You put them pieces right there on the table and keep your hands on your heads, he said as he racked another shell in his shotgun. The three men did as they were told as Liz ran around the table to hide. While one man stood guard over Junior and his men, the others shot patrons as they tried to flee. The rest of the band members had no hope and were gunned down before they even had a chance to drop their instruments. Flappers were shot as they tried to leave the dance floor. The ground quickly became slippery with blood, making it hard for people to escape the slaughter. The cigarette girl ran from near the bar and slipped in a puddle of blood. Before she hit the ground, she was shot by one of the gunmen. The screams were blood-curdling and deafening. Between the gunfire and screaming, the noise was almost too much to bear. Liz crouched on the floor with her hands over her ears, her eyes squeezed tightly shut. She was rocking back and forth and humming, trying to drown out the chaos. At the sound of a close shot, Liz screamed out and felt the spray of something warm covering her. She hesitantly opened her eyes and saw a young flapper laying before her, the top part of her head missing, and a mushy, sponge-like substance spilling onto the floor. With another scream, Liz jumped to her feet. Junior saw this and dove over the back of the bench he was seated in to tackle Liz. With a loud shot, the two hit the floor. Stay down and don't move a muscle, Junior said firmly. He felt a burn and knew he had been hit in the shoulder, but he stayed still to hide from the gunmen. Marcus and John watched the man holding them at bay, waiting for their chance to take him down. The screams continued as glasses behind the bar were shattered and bodies hit the floor. Lefty grabbed a shotgun that was hung just beneath the bar and crawled out into the open, holding his shotgun firmly, ready to defend his restaurant. He lifted the shotgun and aimed at one of the shooters, but the masked man noticed Lefty and turned his shotgun toward him. Lefty jumped up with the gun in his hand and anger on his face. Get some, he yelled as he fired at the masked man. The gunman fell to the ground, but as he toppled, he got off a shot. Lefty was hit in the face and chest with a shotgun blast. He went down. The many people hiding behind the bar saw Lefty hit the ground and let out a collective gasp. John and Marcus looked at each other. They knew that something had to be done, but the gunman was standing too close to them. They needed a distraction, which came when the gunman turned for just a moment to look at the front of the room, where people were being gunned down as they tried to flee. Marcus jumped from the table and tackled him, knocking the shotgun from his hands. The two landed in a puddle of blood pouring from a young couple just feet away. As Marcus struggled with the gunman, rolling around on the ground, John grabbed his own gun from the table and took out the assailant standing at the door, which gave people a chance to run for help, or just run for their lives. It was like opening the floodgates to freedom. A gunman, 
who was headed for the group hiding behind the bar, saw his partner fall and turned toward John, firing his rifle. Sally ducked under the table, hoping to be spared a gruesome demise, while John dropped to his knees and fired back, hitting the gunman in the arm and leg, knocking him to the ground. Don't move, John screamed to his frightened girlfriend. Marcus continued to struggle with the gunman as bodies fell around him. Another masked man kicked over a table in the middle of the room where three young friends were hiding. Without a second thought, and without remorse, he killed all three before he fell dead from John's gun. Marcus grabbed the shotgun nearby and was able to get control of it. With a quick squeeze of the trigger, the gunman fell limp on top of Marcus, who tossed the body off to the side and jumped to his feet. He saw the last living gunman run for the exit. He'd been hit in the arm and leg, but was on the run, and Marcus needed to stop him. So he gave chase. Three. The screams seemed to grow louder without the gunfire to drown them out. John looked around the room at the carnage and felt his stomach drop. A waterfall made of merging rivers of blood flowed over the edge of the stage. Flappers lay on top of one another on the dance floor, and an old man leaned against the bar, holding his wife's lifeless body as he himself died. Bloody and maimed bodies were almost stacked on top of each other near the exit. The moans of the injured and dying echoed in the large room, and John noticed Lefty struggling to stand. He turned to Sally under the table. Are you hit? He questioned quickly and loudly. Sally shook her head rapidly and crawled out of her hiding spot, trying to dodge the blood on the floor. John hugged her like he had never hugged her before, like it was the last time he would ever wrap his arms around her. I need to help. Stay here, he said before running to Lefty's aid. Junior stood slowly and helped Liz to her feet. She was shaking and terrified, understandably. Are you okay? He asked her as she got to her feet. Liz said nothing. She just looked around the room in silent shock. She couldn't cry. She couldn't speak. She couldn't even scream through the lump in her throat. The smell of death was growing stronger by the second. Liz leaned away from Junior and vomited. She gagged, unable to breathe. Then she threw up some more as the tears flowed from her eyes down her red face. Junior focused on Liz more than he should have. She was not hit, and so many others were. Junior! John screamed. Junior turned and saw John hovering over Lefty. He then looked around the room. It was like nothing he had ever seen before. His stomach was sick. He couldn't believe what had happened. We got work to do, Junior, John snapped. Junior realized his hesitation and rushed to help a young flapper who was holding her hand over her friend's gushing wound. Let me take a look, Junior said. The young flapper moved her hand and a flood of blood rushed out of the gunshot wound. Junior fought to hold back the contents of his stomach. He was not prepared for anything like this. At that moment, he assumed this must be what war looked like. Keep pressure on it, he said. Lefty looked up at John, his face covered in pellets and blood. Am I going to die, Big John? He asked in a gurgling voice. 
He was no longer his happy loud self, and it made John miss the annoying loudness that had irritated him so much just moments before. You're gonna be just fine. You can't kill a hillbilly, John said. Just lie here and stay awake until we can get you some help. John looked over at the people still hiding behind the bar. It's safe now. You guys can come out from there, he said in a calm tone. There were six people crouched back there, and they all just stared at John, but stayed there where they felt safe. John thought they looked like captives who were unsure of their freedom. Liz made her way to the booth where Sally was sitting, took a seat across from the table, and grabbed a glass of whiskey. She was shaking uncontrollable as she chugged it all without stopping for her breath. Sally reached across the table and took Liz by the hand. She squeezed, but couldn't find any calming words to help the situation. Sally was scared herself and shaking, but she wanted desperately to help Liz. The two just stared at each other, unable or unwilling to speak. Junior and John continued to make their way around the room, helping anyone who needed it. The front entrance opened slowly, and Dr. Hubert walked in, looking around fervently to make sure it was safe. Once he saw there was no more threat, he walked in, followed by two ambulance drivers who rushed over to the young flapper and her injured friend. Dr. Hubert looked around the room in complete shock. Even after all his years as a doctor, he had never seen such carnage. It was almost too much for him to bear. The damage done to the human body by shotguns and rifles was amazing in a most horrifying way. Bodies were split open with their insides spilling out, and one man near a table looked like he was split in half at the waist. Thanks for coming, Doc, Junior said as he stood up next to a young man who had taken his last breath moments ago. You're hit, Sheriff, Dr. Hubert said. It's not bad. See if you can help these people first, Junior said as he looked around the room again, scanning for anyone who could still be saved. Marcus ran back into the restaurant and was hit with the stench of death as he re-entered. He was out of breath from the chase and bleeding from a gash in his arm. You get him? John asked as he wiped blood from his hands. Marcus looked at John for a moment before answering. He was in shock and breathing heavily. I got him. He paused. His eyes were wide and watery. What is this hell that I am seeing? It's hell, brother, that's for sure, John said as he turned his attention to a small group of survivors. Marcus sat on the stool near the bar, weak and sick, not believing what he was seeing. Marcus had left in such a hurry after the gunman that he hadn't had time to see the carnage left behind. John walked small groups of survivors out of the restaurant to get fresh air and to get them away from the death as more medical staff and additional police officers ran in to help. The first two ambulance drivers took the flapper out on a gurney. Her friend, covered in blood, followed them closely. Atwood Henderson was a 21-year-old photographer for the local paper, the Braxton Daily Call. He was a recent graduate from some high-priced college out west, 
and he had dreams of becoming a world-famous photojournalist. He ran into the restaurant with his Kodak Jr. folding camera and snapped a photo, then froze as the realization of the site he had just photographed hit him. Not now, Atwood, Marcus said. What the hell happened here, deputy? Atwood asked as Junior helped Lefty walk past the young photographer and out of the building. Get out, this is a crime scene, Marcus said sternly. You can't stop the press, Atwood insisted, still unable to move from shock. But I can stop you from disturbing my scene. Now get out, Marcus ordered, pushing Atwood out the door. Four. John returned to the table where Sally and Liz sat in stunned silence. Sally looked up in horror. Liz just stared at the empty glass in her hands. Let's get you two out of here, John said as he extended his hand to Sally. Sally grabbed hold tightly, and John led the two girls out of the carnage. Liz stepped lightly, making sure to avoid the multitudes of blood pools and bodies as she made her way to the front entrance. Twenty-year-old rookie cop Nathan Sheets had joined the force only a few days before. His sister had been kidnapped, raped, and murdered four years ago, and since that day, Nathan vowed to do anything in his power to help prevent that from happening to anyone else. Now, he stood near the bar, looking down at the pools of blood by his feet. Bet you didn't expect this when you joined the force, did you? asked Kenneth. Kenneth Schaefer had been on the force for a number of years. He was the oldest son of Oscar Schaefer, the carpenter who had worked for the Kings many years ago. Kenneth placed his hand on Nathan's shoulder. It's okay. Neither did I. What do we do? Where do we start? Nathan asked as he stared unbelieving at the bodies littering the restaurant. First thing you do is turn off whatever it is that's making you feel... Then, you look for clues and let our crime scene guide document everything here. And then, you help gather and identify the bodies. Kenneth had grown up in this town and had seen his share of violence. Old West style shootouts and dead bodies. For him, it was easy to turn off his emotions and focus on being an officer who needed to get things done. Once outside in the cool, fresh air, Sally took a deep breath and settled down just a bit. Liz could not stop herself from shaking and crying. Sally held her close to comfort her as John returned to help his fellow officers inside. Liz fell to her knees, weak with fright, and Sally joined her on the ground. It's going to be okay now, Sally said as she wiped tears from Liz's face. Liz looked at Sally and through the tears and hard crying, struggled to say, We need them back, Sally. Sally held her tightly. I know we do, hon. I know, she replied. The kings? We need the kings? Atwood asked as he snapped a photo. Can I quote you on that? Sally looked up toward Atwood, but said nothing. Can you tell me what happened in there tonight? The people have a right to know. Atwood insisted as he pulled a pad and pencil from his shirt pocket. Atwood insisted as he pulled a pad and pencil from his shirt pocket. Five. 
Mayor Hartford's house was quite large and sat near the river, just a block from the courthouse that housed the mayor's office. It was easy for him to move between work and home, and he often worked out of his house. Steve Wright, his assistant, lived just across the street in a simple one-story home. He liked being close to work and his lifelong friend. Once through the massive double doors of the mayor's home, you were greeted by a large foyer and an even larger wraparound staircase. Photos of his late wife, Millie, and his son, Junior, sat on a small round table in the center of the foyer. To the left was the mayor's study, which he used as his home office. Near the far wall that was covered in bookshelves sat a large desk. There was a long sofa that sat in the front of the room, near a massive picture window, looking out on the street. On the opposite wall were photos, awards, certificates, and framed newspaper clippings. Nearby were two big chairs separated by a small table. On the desk was a simple lamp, an inkwell, and stacks of paper. And on the corner desk sat a photo of Millie, who had died of consumption eight years ago. At the top of the wraparound staircase, a long and narrow hallway led to the mayor's bedroom. The room was simple, just a bed in the center of the room, a dresser along the wall, and the closet to the left of the bed. The mayor was a man of simple taste. Just after midnight, the mayor was awakened by pounding on his front door. He stumbled out of bed, having just settled down for the night an hour before, and put on his dark blue robe, tying it shut as he walked down the stairs. The pounding continued, and the screaming of his son Junior could be heard on the other side. Come on, Pa! Wake up! Junior yelled from just outside the door as he continued to pound. All right, all right. I'm coming, boy. Just hold your damn horses, the mayor yelled as he opened the door. Junior rushed in, followed by Steve, who had received a phone call about the slaughter. He had people all over town keeping him in the know, so he could keep the mayor up to date with everything. Junior's right arm was in a sling. What happened to you, boy? The mayor asked. Junior ignored his father and went to the study, where he poured himself a drink. The mayor followed his son into the study, and Steve followed the mayor. I asked you a question, boy. What happened to you? Are you shot? The mayor was worried. Yeah, Pa, I'm shot, Junior replied with a snap. Well, what the hell happened? The mayor asked. Junior was silent. Boy, talk to me. He was getting deeply concerned. Junior downed a glass of whiskey and slammed the empty glass on the desk. Junior, the mayor yelled. Shut up, Pa. Damn you. Just shut up for one damn minute, Junior barked. The mayor was shocked. His son had never spoken to him like that. He stepped back and took a seat on the couch, waiting for his son to speak. Steve stood silently by the doorway and waited to see what Junior had to say. There was an incident this evening, Junior began as he poured himself a fresh drink. At lefties, Jake and Al came into the study and the mayor looked over at the two men. Al was in his mid-forties, but with all the abuse done to his body over the years, he was aging and not well. He walked with the aid of a cane, which he often leaned against when standing. 
His bad knee had gotten worse. Jake had aged beyond his years as well, mostly from his constant anger and need to be involved in everything that happened in town. Take a seat, Al, Steve said as he motioned toward the chairs near the wall. Jake followed and also sat. I called them here as soon as I heard, just in case we needed them, Steve explained. Jake and Al were part of the unofficial city council, along with the mayor and Alyssa Crosby. Jake, Alyssa, and Mayor Hartford were descendants of three of the four founding families. Al had lived in town for so long that he knew just about everyone and everything that went on. The mayor just expected the men to show up whenever there was a need for them, and Steve always made sure to make that happen. While Alyssa was always kept in the loop, she rarely met with the men. The mayor turned back to his son, who was finishing off his second glass of whiskey. Junior explained what happened at Lefty's as they listened in silent shock. Tears rolled down the mayor's cheeks. This was unimaginable. He stood and slowly walked over to his desk where Junior poured another glass. You need this, Pa he said, handing the full glass to his father. Yeah, I think you're right, boy. I think you're right. His voice trailed off at the end. The room fell silent as the men tried to wrap their heads around what Junior had told them. Al looked at the mayor, waiting for a reaction. How many dead? the mayor asked. Thirty-two, Junior was almost afraid to say. Wounded? The best we could tell, 13. But some people ran out of there after the shooting stop, who might have been hit too. The place was packed. Maybe 60, 70 people were there beforehand. My heavens, boy. It was a slaughter. The mayor stood, wiping tears from his face. The room fell completely silent as the men waited for the mayor to speak. Who could do such a thing? Here of all places. I know we had our issues lately, but we never had anything like this. The mayor's voice cracked as he spoke. I don't know, Paul, but I've already got all my men on it. The mayor appeared calm on the outside, but his mind was racing as he paced. Nothing was stolen. Nothing was mentioned. They just went in and shot. Something has to be done about this, Jake began. You're the sheriff. What are you going to do? I just said I got all my men on it, Junior snapped. No. We need to form a mob. And find these sons of bitches, Jake frantically replied. Find who? Jake asked. They're all dead. I told you. We got them all. Someone has to know something, Jake said. Al just sat silently, listening. He knew what had to be done, but he also knew that he couldn't be the one to suggest it. Me and my guys will find the person, if there is one, who set this up, Junior said with determination. We need to get out there and find out who knows what, Jake said. No! the mayor yelled. Everyone in the room went quiet and stared at the mayor, waiting for him to speak. 
The mayor sat in silence for a moment, sipping from his glass. Finally, he spoke. These men were ruthless, he began. They didn't care about human life. They come into our town and kill our people without cause or concern. He was angry, and everyone in the room felt his tension. This is pure evil. And there's only one way to combat evil like this. The mayor paused and looked at Al, who slowly nodded his head. Get me the kings, the mayor said firmly. Junior looked at the floor. He had mixed feelings about the idea. Jake was enraged by what the mayor had just said, but Al sat in silent agreement. He knew it was the right decision. Is that necessary? Steve asked from behind the desk. No, it's not, Jake said sharply before anyone else had a chance to respond. Jake was the reason the kings had been ostracized, so of course he didn't want them to return. Six. Sam had been out riding the property one afternoon, something he did nearly every day. It cleared his mind. As he rode along the top of a hill leading down to a ravine, he heard some laughter. Trespassers again, he thought to himself. Pulling his favorite revolver from its holster, he thumbed the hammer and slowly rode closer to the edge of the hill to get a good look at whoever it was. He would often find people in the ravine. It was a popular place for youngsters to drink, away from the prying eyes of their parents. Sometimes, they would travel too far down the ravine and trespass onto the king's property. As he rode closer, he saw Emily Burns, naked, on top of some young guy he didn't recognize. They were giggling and having a good time. Sam felt he had to tell Jake of his wife's infidelity, and he also knew he had to get to Jake before she did. So, without disturbing the two, he had gone straight to Jake's home to deliver the news. Jake had been embarrassed and enraged by the accusation. He couldn't believe his wife would do such a thing. You keep your filthy mouth shut, young man, he'd yelled. How dare you soil my wife's good name? You get out of here right now, and don't you ever come back. In the following weeks, Jake began to spread rumors about the brothers. He told tales of drunken sex parties at their farm and strange noises coming from their land. Lies that people began to believe, no matter how far-fetched they were. The kings were shunned every time they went into town, and eventually... They just stopped going altogether. Most people knew about Emily's behavior, but they just didn't want to feel the wrath of Jake. He had a lot of clout around town because of his family name. So, everyone began to turn their backs on the brothers. Even the people the brothers had helped in the past. It was a betrayal of the worst kind. So the brothers stopped helping anyone in town and just stayed at their farm and worked the land. Al did his best to stay out of this situation. He knew the brothers had to learn from this. He remained close with the town folk to keep an eye on everything going on, but 
He never mentioned his nephews or their betrayal by the townspeople. 7. The men in the study all looked at Jake. They knew how he felt, and they didn't really care. We don't need those liars back in town. We've done just fine without those criminals for years, Jake professed. Look around you, jackass, the mayor snapped. Does it look like we're doing just fine? Crime has been on the rise for the past five or six years. My boy has done a good job, but there comes a point when we have to take extreme measures. The mayor and Junior looked over at Al. They still work the family farm. Al coughed a raspy cough. You know where to find them. Will you tell them? Junior asked. Al coughed into his handkerchief. I think it would be better coming from you. They need to know that the town needs them. And it would have more meaning if it came from you. I'll keep my mouth shut until you talk to them. You're not really considering this, are you? Jake asked. They're not your friends anymore, Junior. Where have they been all these years? I chose my path and they chose theirs. You ran them out of town. You abandoned them after everything they did for... Al slammed his cane on the hardwood floor to interrupt Junior. You can't let your personal animosity for my boys cloud your judgment, Al began. You know damn well that they are the only real answer for Braxton. They always have been. But this town turned its back on them because of you, Jake. I'd say it's high time they get the apology they deserve. The mayor walked to the doorway. Good. It's settled then he began. Keep the pressure on with your officers, and I want the kings here first thing in the morning. The mayor had a note of relief in his voice. He knew the kings would be able to get to the bottom of whatever this was, whether it was a one-time issue, or if the town really needed to be worried. Steve put his hand out to stop the mayor. Call when you need me, Jackson, he said before leaving the house. Jake stopped at the doorway, paused, and turned to the mayor. You know how I feel on this matter. You're going to regret getting them boys involved. The mayor didn't reply, and Jake stormed out of the house. The mayor stopped Al before he could leave. I want to make things right with your boys. You know I always have. But we need to put all personal feelings aside for now. You say you've always wanted to make things right. Yet, they have lived in the same place their entire lives, and never a word from you, not so much as a visit. The mayor hung his head toward the ground. I come into town almost daily and spend most of my time here with you, yet never a word about my boys. Al turned and looked out the door. You have a lot to make up for, Jackson, and a lot to prove to them. Al walked out of the house slowly, leaning heavily on his cane. 8. The mayor closed the door and returned to his study, where Junior was sitting on the sofa drinking yet another glass of whiskey. Slow down, boy, 
That stuff's a lot harder to come by these days, he said as he poured himself another glass too. Junior laughed. If you saw what I saw tonight, you'd done been drunk already, Pop. I couldn't even imagine it. The mayor paused to take a seat behind his desk. The horrors you must have seen. I'm sorry. This is the life I chose for myself. Helping people. Sometimes that means I have to see things so nobody else has to, Junior said. The two sat without speaking for a moment before the mayor broke the silence. How you gonna talk to Neil and Sam? I haven't figured that out yet. I expect I'll just go up there and ask for their help. Be plain and to the point. I have no time for the past, and I hope they'll understand. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed Chapter 3. Join here next week for Chapter 4, The King's Return. Just a friendly reminder, if you like what you're hearing, you can pop on over to Amazon.com where you can buy The Kings of Braxton, Born Under Trouble, on ebook and in paperback version. Thank you very much for stopping by.